Well, welcome. If you have been with us the last few weeks, you know that we have been uh, in this series uh, called Losing My Religion, and we've been walking through the book of Galatians. If you have not been with us, welcome. We're in chapter three this week, and uh, we're glad that you have joined us. Before we go any further, though, would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, God, we come this morning with open hearts and open minds to hear from you. God, each one of us comes from our own place. Some from places of thanksgiving and blessing this morning and excitement to be here with friends and family. Others in pain. And so God, I pray that as we open up your word today that it would speak into our lives would speak truth about who we are and who you believe we are, and God, that as a result of that, life might look and feel a little bit different. So God, fill our heads with knowledge about who you are, fill our hearts with passion and love for you, and fill our actions in obedience to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if I were to ask you to think of something that is impossible, what would come to mind? What for you is something that is impossible? Now, as I prepared for this, I spent some time looking on the internet at impossible things, and I found this picture. This is the coin toss at the Super Bowl tonight, where it says, heads, we replace you with the saints and the chiefs. Tails, we replace you with the saints versus the chiefs. That is my impossibility that I really wish could be possible this morning. Uh, Amen. Thank you from the back. We appreciate that. I mean, let's be honest. Who wants to watch this game? (laughs) But what else might be impossible? I found another list of nine nearly impossible things that you will try to do as soon as you read the list. That was the title of the article. I thought this would be really entertaining for me because I want to see how many of you try to do them while you're sitting there in the pew and no one else can see you. Touch your nose with your tongue. Wiggle your ears. Raise one eyebrow. It's nearly impossible to tickle yourself. Never thought about that. It's nearly impossible to put your fist in your mouth. Now, when I read this next one, I had to try it, and then I walked around the office to see if I could convince other staff to try it. They could do it, and I couldn't. But they say it's nearly impossible to write the number six while moving your foot in a clockwise direction. So you guys can use your sermon note sheet and try that out today. It'd be great. It's nearly impossible to eat a spoonful of cinnamon. Uh, I, early in my career, had an intern uh, who was committed to doing this. He was going to eat a spoonful of cinnamon. So we're at this meeting, four youth pastors, youth ministry intern, nothing good ever comes out of these meetings. And he decides that in this church's boardroom, he's going to take an entire tablespoonful of cinnamon. He immediately choked blue cinnamon everywhere and spent the entire meeting cleaning cinnamon out of their boardroom while we had to find someplace else to meet. Don't try that at home. It's nearly impossible to lick your elbow, and it's nearly impossible to sneeze with your eyes open. On a more serious note, though, 
if we sat down for a cup of coffee and I looked across the table at you and I asked you, what's the thing you want most to change in your life but you know is impossible? What would you say? You see, impossibility can be funny when it's about football games and weird things our body can't do. But all of a sudden, when impossibility hits real life, it's not so funny anymore. When we've prayed for something year after year after year and we feel like God's been silent, impossibility doesn't seem funny. But what if the truth of the gospel is the story of God meeting us in our impossibility and bringing new life? What if that's what the gospel's really all about? This idea that God has met us or will meet us in our place of impossibility where we think there's no hope, there's no way for change, and he will bring new life. I think that's exactly the truth of Galatians chapter 3. As Paul presents it, he tells us about Abraham, and that is the truth of Abraham's life. And it can be the truth of our life if we simply believe. So Zach read the end of Galatians chapter 3. Let me read the beginning, starting in verse 1. You foolish Galatians... Anybody else, like, glad you're not in Galatia right now? Like, even when it was, like, negative 58 degrees this week, I was really glad I wasn't in Galatia where Paul's like, hey, you fool. <sighs> Who has bewitched you before your very eyes? Jesus Christ was clear, clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish, after beginning by means of the Spirit, you're now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it was really in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law, or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, keep in mind, Paul is trying to tell the Jewish Christians in Galatia that and we should all know this formula by now, so I'm going to test you, that Jesus plus equals... All right, we're kind of waking up. Let's try that one more time. Jesus plus equals... Right, so he's like, okay, so he said, hey, I went to Jerusalem, I debated with Peter and James, and they agreed with me, they agreed this message is right, and so now he goes back and he's like, listen, I'm going to come one more time, this time I'm going to come with Abraham. Now, if you are a Jewish follower of Christ, Abraham's a big deal. He's like the guy in Genesis chapter 12 who God calls and says, 
hey, I want to bless you. I'm going to bless your family. I'm going to make your kids as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. You are going to be my people and I am going to be your God. I'm going to create a people and a nation out of you. He's the father of the Jewish faith. And Paul says, look back at the end of that passage. Paul says, and also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham, the man of faith. Paul doesn't say, hey, remember Abraham? He obeyed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In Abraham's life, order matters. The order of events mattered in Abraham's life, and it matters in our lives today. And the truth of that order is God acts. The first thing that happens every time is God acts. Abraham is not trying to be the father of a new nation. He's not trying to have that many kids. He's just doing his thing. And God calls and says, hey, Abraham, I want you to leave your family, leave your inheritance, go into the desert, really, like, commit suicide in a lot of ways. You're still going to live, take your wife and kids with you, but, like, you're leaving everything behind you. And I'm going to bless you. Abraham believes. He believes God. He believes he can trust what God has said. And of all the people in Scripture, maybe Abraham has some of the craziest things he has to believe. I mean, I'm no biologist, definitely not a doctor, but a hundred-year-old womb is dead. Abraham had to look at himself and look at his wife Sarah and be like, we're going to be the parents of a great nation? There's no life. It's an impossibility that God would bring life to a hundred-year-old womb. And yet that's exactly what God does because God meets us in our impossibility and brings new life. Just a couple chapters later, he says to Abraham, hey, you know that son, the one you had with Sarah? I want you to take him and sacrifice him. Give him back to me. Abraham believes, and then he obeys. Every time, Abraham believes, and then he obeys. Order matters. I want you to think about it this way. If you're following along in your notes and wondering what that weird little picture is there, this line is holiness. This line is time. This is not the Stark Market. But over time, our goal as followers of Christ is to become more like Christ, to become more holy until eventually we hope to reach 100%. However, for Abraham, 
and for us. At the moment of belief, we become 100% holy in God's eyes. Because he sees us through his son. That's the truth of Abraham's story. That's the truth of Genesis 3. That's the power of the gospel. That at the point we believe, God acts, and however God acts in our life, and how, whatever God does in God's mystery and God's bigness, and we want to define how God's going to act, and I don't think it happens that easy that time, every time. But God acts, and we have a point to believe, and once we believe, we are made 100% holy. We'll never be more holy than we are in that moment. No matter what we do, no matter what we say, no matter what we think, we'll always be 100% holy. But then we have this lived experience, right? It's kind of a roller coaster ride for a lot of us. Maybe some of you don't have the dips that I have, but for some of us, this is a roller coaster ride. Martin Luther used to say this is simultaneously saint and sinner. That I am 100% justified in God, 100% righteous, 100% perfect. But my lived experience is one of imperfection. I used to look at it this way. And I used to think about the cross in the middle of this as a whiteboard. And God would just, I would sin and I would make mistakes and God would take his big God-shaped hand and wipe the whiteboard clean. And then I would fill the whiteboard up again and I'd go to God and I'd say, God, I'm really sorry. And he would wipe the whiteboard clean. And I'd fill the whiteboard up again and I'd go to God and I'd say, I'm really sorry. And he would wipe the whiteboard clean. This week, I learned something as I wrestled with the words of Paul and I wrestled with what he's saying to the Galatians. It's more powerful than that. It's not that he just wipes the whiteboard clean. You don't have to watch me draw the whole thing over and over again. When Christ died and we believed, we became Christ's perfection. We are perfect in God's eyes. At the moment of belief, we are perfection. We have the perfection of Christ and he took our sin and our imperfection in himself. And so when God looks at you and when God looks at me, he looks at us and says, complete, perfect, loved. We are the perfection of Christ. But we live this life and this is what Paul gets on the Galatians about. I think this is what Paul's so frustrated with the Galatians about. is because he says, you've been made perfect. By who? Not by your own strength. By the Holy Spirit, by God, by your belief in what God has done. And now you want to like go back and be like, oh, well, I'll do the rest of it on my own. I'll live this piece out in my own strength. 
right? And we can be like, what's wrong with the Galatians? Like, if you're already perfect, why are you trying to do this in your own strength? But we do the same thing. I'll pick on myself. I do the same thing. I won't impart my own bad behavior on you guys. Let's take anger. So I get angry, and then what do we do? We go and we pray, and we say, God, would you forgive me for my anger, and would you help me not get angry with person X again? I won't tell you who person X is in case they're in the room. Help me not to get angry with person X again. And then we go try to memorize some scripture to help us stay calm. We try to pray more. We read our Bible more. We try to do it all. And Paul's like, you foolish Galatians, don't you get it? If you can't get here on your own strength, you can't get here on your own strength either. This is the Spirit. This is the work of the Spirit. Not to give away the end of Galatians, but there's going to be this part where we talk about some fruit. And that's fruit of the Spirit, not fruit of me. Paul says, if you want to live out the gospel, if you really believe the gospel, you believe it's the truth to change your whole life. So back to my anger. Let's just give you a, just make sure you really get this. So it's Friday night. What I really want on Friday night, we do pizza movie night in our house on Friday night. That means we rent a movie or we watch a movie on Netflix. We sit in our comfy clothes and we eat pizza and then we go to bed. It's beautiful. Except for when we turn on Netflix. And you get the spinning wheel of death. And the only thing I hate more in, I don't think I hate anything more in life actually than technology that doesn't work. But on a day when it's been a long week and you just want to sit down in comfy clothes and eat pizza and be with your family and zone out and watch a movie and you get the circle that says 3%. 7%. 30%. And it just keeps spinning and you're like 96% and it just sits there. It's taunting me. And if my family was in the room, they would tell you the color of my skin begins to change starting at the base of my neck and moving up to my head until this vein pops right here. And I get angry. Because I just want to sit and watch a movie. Now I could very simply say, God, sorry I got angry at Netflix. Forgive me of that. But if I'm going to say the gospel changes my life, the reality is I'm not angry at Netflix. I'm angry because I've allowed something else to be my savior. I'm angry because I haven't believed that I'm 100% perfect. I'm angry because I've tried to work to prove my worth to somebody, because I haven't taken time to rest Monday through Thursday, because I was battling insecurity about whether or not I'm actually good enough to do my job, or I'm actually good enough to raise my kids. And so instead of resting in the gospel and resting in the truth, that God makes me good enough, that God says you're perfect, that God says you're right, I haven't allowed myself to rest. So what about for each one of us? What if instead of confessing this sin or that sin, 
We started with God. Where have I allowed somebody or something else to replace the gospel in my life this week? God, help me see that. Help me see that that's not what you wanted. It's impossible for me to work hard enough to overcome my sin. But the gospel brings victory over sin. What if we began to believe the gospel actually could give us victory over our sin? And we began to cry out that God would show us where we've not allowed or not believed in what he said. Where we've not believed that he could actually deliver us from our own impossibility. That he could speak new life into impossible situations. You see, the promise of God proceeded the law of God. Look in chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise, but in God's grace, he gave it to Abraham through a promise. Paul's saying, listen, just because the law came after the promise, just because the law came after the covenant, doesn't change anything. And there's this beautiful picture that's a little bit weird to us in our day and age, if we're honest about what that looks like in Abraham's, how God establishes that covenant. So he tells Abraham, Abraham, I want you to go get a cow, I want you to get a goat, I want you to get a dove, and I want you to get a pigeon. Right? So if God told us to do those things, we'd be like, but God, I don't want to be a farmer. But Abraham knew what was happening. Because when you made an agreement or a covenant with someone in that day, you would cut the animal in half, spread its halves apart, and you would walk through in between that dead animal holding the hand of the person you're making the covenant with. And as you pass through, you're essentially symbolizing that if one of us breaks this agreement... May what's happened to the cow happen to us. Right? So that's like a little, I mean, I get it. It's a little different. Aren't you glad you don't live in the Bible times? We can like shake hands. But God says, so Abraham does this, and then he gets tired and he takes a nap. This is all in Genesis 15 if you want to look it up when you get home. He takes a nap. And as he sleeps, a flaming pot comes and passes between the dead animals. And God speaks to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, this is a covenant with you. I am the flaming pot. I am the one that will hold this covenant. I will hold your half and I will hold my half. So Abraham, no matter what, this covenant will never break, will never be changed. I am the God who created the covenant. I am the God who will uphold both halves of the covenant it's not dependent on you, Abraham. God's love for us, God's commitment to us is not dependent on us. And if God would allow the, the law to come in and change that, it makes God to be a liar. 
And we know that that can't be true. So then what is the purpose of the law? If God established this covenant with Abraham and that covenant will never leave, then what is the purpose of the law? Well, the truth is the law alone leads to death because we could never satisfy the law. The law alone leads to death. It doesn't take us very far to see that. Just take a look at the Ten Commandments. We won't talk about all the small laws you've got to obey, but just the Ten Commandments. We all look at the Ten Commandments, we go, I'm doing pretty good. I haven't killed anybody this week. It's good. God loves me. I haven't committed murder yet. I haven't done any of the big ones. How many of us have never told a lie? Even the little one. Even the one says, well, I told my mom my room was clean, but it's really not. How many of us have never dishonored our father and mother? You see, we don't have to look very deeply into the law to realize we fall short and we're dead. The law alone leads to death. As one theologian said it this way, After God gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the law to Moses. Why? He had to make things worse before he could make them better. The law exposed sin, provoked sin, condemned sin. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off man's respectability and disclose what he really is underneath. Sinful, rebellious, under the judgment of God, and helpless to save himself. But God acted. God acted when we couldn't. And the law plus the gospel leads to a life of gratitude. The law plus the gospel leads to a life lived in gratitude. Let me say that again because I want you to get it. And Zach told me this would learn a lot of Lutheran credibility points. The law plus the gospel leads to a life of gratitude. What do I mean by that? There's a story of this hotel that was being built in Galveston, Texas. Now, I don't know if you read, as you read stories, if you ever want to like be there. Like, I want to be in the story sometimes. And I wanted to be in this story. They built this hotel. They built it right on the Gulf. The piers are actually in the Gulf. The windows to the hotel are over the Gulf. And so as they're building this high-rise hotel, somebody says, people are going to try to fish out of their windows. How are we going to stop people from fishing out of their windows? So someone said, let's put a sticker in the window. No fishing from hotel rooms. Right? Now, okay, this is honesty time. Show of hands. How many of you, if someone tells you not to do something, that's the only thing you can think about doing? Right? That's, uh, this is why I'm a youth pastor. This is what we do. Somebody tells us we can't. Oh, but there's got to be a way we can. So everybody starts throwing, like, they brought their fishing poles to go fishing in the Gulf, and they're like, wait, I don't have to leave my room. Let's open the window, cast this thing out, 
I got a bite. And they start reeling it in, right? They're pulling in this fish. There's a restaurant on the bottom, glass windows. Fish comes out from the 12th floor, smacks the window. There's fish guts all over the window. People are trying to eat dinner. There's somebody fishing three floors below. Their lines get tied up. They like cut the line, steal my fish. There's fights. It's a mess. Everybody's fishing out of the hotel windows. And the manager's like, we put up the sign. What are we going to do? How do we stop them? Then one day he thought, I'm going to take down all the stickers. And so he went through the hotel and he took all the stickers out of the windows. You know what? Nobody's ever fished out of a hotel window again. You don't go to a hotel, check in with your luggage, and go, I wonder if I could fish out of that window. Nobody thinks like that. I mean, if you do, come talk to me because we're going to have some fun after the service. But the reality is nobody thinks like that. And if we take the law and we look at the law as a list of things we can't do, we're going to fail every time. Because of our nature. Because when someone says to me, Jason, you can't do that, yeah, I can. We don't obey things because we have to. Right, kids? No kid says, oh, my mom says I had to do this, so I'm going to go do it, right? None of you do that. We obey because we want to. Because we understand how loved we are. Because we understand the gospel has changed our lives. The gospel has made us perfect. The gospel has made us flawless. The gospel has told us we're loved beyond anything we can imagine. And so, yeah, I'm still going to mess up. But I'm living my life out of gratitude and thanksgiving for what God means. It's out of gratitude for God's love for us, that we're able to love him back. It's out of gratitude that we're able to love our neighbors. Maybe even helping them shovel their driveway when it's like negative 50 degrees outside. It's out of gratitude that we can love our kids and grandkids more than we love the way we do church. It's out of gratitude that Christ, we put Christ first, our neighbor second, and ourselves third. But if we mess up the order of God acts, we believe, then we respond in obedience, this whole thing falls apart. God acts, we believe, we respond obediently. What's your impossibility? What's the thing that if we sat down for coffee, this is what you thought of? Maybe you're here today and you think it's impossible that God could love you or that God could forgive you for like the 50,000th time of asking forgiveness for the same thing. Maybe you're in one of those valleys and you can barely see the top. What I want you to hear this morning is the gospel is the story of God meeting us in our impossibility. The impossibility of a hundred-year-old barren womb bringing forth 
a nation of people. The impossibility of God dying on a cross. God died on a cross to pay for my sin, and he rose again. God meets us in those places of impossibility and brings forth new life. It's the impossibility of Saul or Paul, a murderer who attacked Christians and imprisoned Christians, writing over half the New Testament and leading millions to Christ in the years since. The gospel is God's story of making your impossibility possible. Not through obedience, not through doing it on your own, but by belief that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. The gospel is all we need to live a life of gratitude and to gain victory over sin. Will we believe? Will you pray with me?